Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles this morning, would you open our hearts to receive what you would have us receive? Would you give us ears to hear your voice and hearts to believe your word that testifies to your goodness? I pray, God, that our hearts would embrace the fact that you are a good God. I pray that we would enjoy the fact that you are a good God. Lord, would you be with us now as we study your word in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to Psalm 73, to the passage our friend Cheryl just read so well for us, Psalm 73. This morning, I just want us to meditate on this psalm. And one of the reasons why I want to meditate on this psalm is because the psalms uh, are, have the power to prevent you and I from becoming neurotic in our relationship with God. Uh, they have the power to keep us from becoming, uh, thinking that we are somehow unique in the human experience as it relates to how we interact with God and what God is doing in our lives. As you read through the Psalms, you find the Psalms addressing a wide range of human experiences, and they reflect a wide range of human emotions and struggles that are quite common to every person who's sought to live their lives by faith in the goodness of of God. And so here in Psalm 73, we have an, another, oper- another uh, psalm before us that, that reflects that, that showcases a man who is struggling in his relationship with God. He believes certain things to be true about who God is, but his heart is having a hard time embracing these truths. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the image I've shared with you before. As a child, we had vending machines that didn't take credit cards. They were not that fancy. They took quarters. And you would shove quarters in some of these older-style vending machines. And at times, they would get stuck. They would get lodged in the top. And until the coin drops into the bottom, you're not going to be able to get anything from the vending machine. Well, that's kind of the experience of the psalmist. There's a truth that's lodged in his head. But this truth has not yet dropped into the heart, and therefore it's not yet producing the fruit, producing the life, producing the joy that that truth should in his life. And I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you are there right now. Are you sitting in a situation or a season or a stretch in your journey with Jesus where a truth about who Jesus is is just kind of stuck in your head, and it's not dropping in your heart as it ought and as God intends for it to drop? One of the ways that we talk about what it means to grow as a disciple and to grow as a follower of Jesus. We say as we want to commit ourselves to this process of constantly taking the gospel in by inhaling the gospel, taking the gospel in, but we don't just want to take the gospel in. We want to think the gospel through. And as we're thinking the gospel through, that's when we begin to turn the gospel out and the gospel begins to show up and show out in our lives in transformative ways. Well, this is the process that the psalmist is going to take us through here in this passage. There's a truth that's lodged in his head. It's one that he has taken in many times over the course of his journey with God. And he's going to go through a very raw and real process that will serve that truth dropping into his soul. And as it drops into his soul at the end of the psalm, you find one who's ready to go and bear witness to the fact that God is good and reflecting it and relaying that reality to those around them. And so as we study the psalm together and we just kind of meditate upon it, that's the process I want us to walk through. I want us to take in this truth that God is a good God. But I also want us to think through that reality, think through that truth, because believing that God is good can be challenged and threatened on a number of levels in a world like we live. We live in a world where there's a lot of incongruity between faith in a good God and the frustrations of life, the struggles of life, and that can create all types of conflict and tension and incongruities. And, and so we're going to kind of think through that or let, really just kind of let the psalmist think through that for us, and we're going to join him in that journey. And, 
And as that truth drops into our souls, we get to this point, we're ready to uh, essentially embrace the goodness of God. So let's look at this first verse. In verse 1, Psalm 73, the writer of this poem, of this hymn, of this song, he affirms the goodness of God. He says, God is indeed good to Israel. It is as strong of a statement as you can make. God is indeed, he is surely, he is absolutely good to Israel. It says in a parallel expression, he is good to the pure in heart. Now the pure in heart there does not mean sinless. If you think sinless, you're going to cut yourself off from the beauty of this psalm. Pure in heart does not mean sinless. It means uh, uh, to be faithful. It means to be loyal. It means to be a member of the covenant community, trusting in the promises of God. That is who Israel was in the Old Testament. And because they received God's promises and they were trusting in the promises of God, they, uh, God was good to the faithful because he, they were trusting him. They were believing that he is as good as he reveals himself to be. And so but he affirms this truth. God is indeed good to his people. He is indeed good to the covenant community. But then it takes a jarring shift in verse 2 as he moves from affirming the goodness of God to where now he's doubting it. He's, he's kind of talking about truth in generic form, saying God is good to his people. He's good to the faithful. I know that to be true, but my experience right now is different. And so he shifts from affirming the goodness of God to doubting the goodness of God. And listen to what he says. He says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I almost bailed on this faith. I almost ejected from this journey with the God who had redeemed Israel from Egypt and this God who had made promises to send the Messiah to rescue and to redeem and to renew all things, saying, my feet almost slipped because it was a disconnect between my head and my heart. The truth was in my head, but it wasn't dropping into my soul as it ought. So he says, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Have you ever been there in your journey with Jesus? Have you ever gotten to a point where you uh, are thinking through, well, do I really want to continue on in this life of faith? Do I really want to continue on believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus? Do I really want to own the reality that God is good in my life? Well, the psalmist is doubting it here. He's struggling with it. And what's interesting about it is that if you look up at the beginning of verse 1 or just above verse 1, we're told who this psalm is ascribed to. And this psalm was ascribed to a guy named Asaph. Asaph is a guy in, this, in the book of Psalms who's written probably about 12 psalms. So not every psalm was written by David. Some were written by others. And this is an example of a psalm written by a man named Asaph. What's unique about Asaph is that Asaph was a leader of worship in the people of Israel. He would be the guy that if God's people gathered on the Sabbath and they were to sing songs, he would be leading one of the choirs of Israel. He would be leading them out to sing truths about God. And he was a respected leader. He was an admired leader. He was an influential leader. And yet here we find him to be a doubting leader. No one is immune to the struggles of life. No one is immune to the struggles of faith that can move from affirming one thing and yet doubting it in uh, the next moment or in the next stretch. And so here you have a worship leader among the people of God who's expressing his heart struggle with the truth about God's goodness. And notice where he goes in verse 3. He says, for I, he's getting very personal. He's talked about God's truth for the people of Israel. Now he's just thinking about his own experience and how he is having a hard time believing what is true. And says, and part of the reason why he's doubting the goodness of God is stated in verse 3. It says he's doubting because he envied the arrogant. 
he saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he stepped back from his life of faith and he looked around at all the people who were not living a life of faith and things were going great for them. Life was going swell, life was going well, and he began to envy their situation. He was, how can they be prospering and me be struggling when I am the one who believes in the goodness of God? They don't believe in God, they've rejected God, and he goes on to describe them in some intensely poetic ways in verses 4 through 12, where he's just basically painting a caricature of the prosperous, a caricature of those who were faithless surrounding him. And the reason why it's important to recognize that he's painting a caricature, because he says in verse 4 that they have an easy time until they die. We know that's not true for everyone, but that's what envy does to us. When we become envious of others, we create caricatures of them, and we assume that everything's right for them all the time. And our heart begins to turn them into a caricature of prosperity and affluence, and we assume that everything is great for them. But if you just dig a little deeper in people's lives... If you dig deeper into the lives of those around you, you will find that nobody has an easy time in a fallen world. But this is why envy is such a treacherous heart state. Envy causes us to turn people into caricatures, and we refer to them in ways that is not good, that is not honoring, that is not dignifying, put it that way. And this idea of envy, it's so pervasive in the human heart that it actually shows up in the very beginning of the Bible. You know, anytime we start doubting the goodness of God, it's going to lead us to envying others. It's going to lead us to comparing and contrasting ourselves with others, saying, okay, God's not as good to me as he is to them. And the reason for that is because I think for God to be good, then he must give me the things that they have. And if I don't have what they have, then God isn't, then, then God's not good or my faith isn't legit. And and this struggle started in the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were created by God in his image, put in the Garden of Eden. And you know that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord told Adam and Eve, look, you can have everything here. Enjoy it all. Prosper in Eden. And Adam and Eve turned their attention to this tree that, they were, that was forbidden to them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the serpent slithered up. And the very first strategy he employed was to cause them to doubt the goodness of God. He asks a question, a subtle question that seems to be maybe even an innocuous question. Did God really say that you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And that question just kick-started a process in their thinking, so they began to wonder, is God holding something back from us? Is God as good as Eden suggests that he is? If he is good, then why can't I have everything that I want? And right now, I want the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I look at the fruit of this tree and I see that it is pleasing to the eyes, that it would be tasty. And, and they, of course, give in to that temptation and they uh, succumb to their desires in that moment. And eventually, envy essentially broke the world as they begin to envy something that wasn't available to them and all blossoming and blooming out of the goodness of God. So envy is a very familiar familiar experience. If it was present there, it's certainly present here. If it's present in paradise, it's certainly present in Bellingham, Washington. If it's present in Eden, it's certainly present in the Hallows Church. And so we want to be guard against, be on guard against this dynamic that flows from when we begin to doubt the goodness of God that kind of blossoms from that reality. I see this being pervasive and prevalent in the lives of my kids. Anytime I give Delaney one treat, Asher, or I'll give all three of my kids a treat and and they won't even look at what I'm actually giving them. They're, they pay more attention to what the other got. And so you hand them all the same thing, but before they really recognize that, they're just looking at the other and saying, well, okay, what did they get? Is, and if I look down, am I going to see something in my lap that's as good as what they got? And you see this common, this common 
struggle with envy starting at a very, very young age. There was an essayist by the name of Joseph Epstein who paints a picture of why envy is such a such an ugly, nasty condition of the heart. He would say, of all the seven deadly sins, only envy is the one that's no fun at all. And we know that there's plenty, there's plenty of research to back up his statement. Psychologists have found that envy decreases life satisfaction and it actually depresses our well-being. They go on to say that envy is positively correlated with depression and neuroticism and the hostility it breeds may actually make us sick. And then recent work suggests that envy can help explain our complicated relationship with social media, that it often leads to destructive uh, social comparisons which decreases happiness. This is why Instagram and Facebook and Twitter can be harmful to the soul if you kind of live in that edited, filtered world. And so Epstein would go on to say that envy makes us look ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. That's certainly the psalmist's experience here, right? He looks ungenerous, he looks mean, and he looks small-hearted. He's turning the faithless into a caricature, and he's painting them in a light that, that, isn't, that shows really no hope for them in these types of ways. He's envious of them. And then as you continue on, you drop into verse 13, and he moves from expressing envy that is flowing out of his doubt in the goodness of God to where he starts basically experiencing a terrible case of FOMO. Uh, just the fear of missing out is all over him in verse 13. Listen to what he says. You hear his regret. He says, asks the question, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Why am I living a life of faith? Why am I go out going after this God? Why am I involved in the activities of the sanctuary? Why do I give time and attention to the worship of God's people? Why am I involved in this at all? And so he expresses deep regret in that moment. And this regret that is coming out of his, re his envious heart, it, it reveals that he's very short-sighted, and it reveals that he's grown very myopic in his faith. And when he goes on, he says in verse 14, for I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. The best thing he does up to this point in verse 15 is that he keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> this is an internal struggle. This is one thing that we should credit Asaph for, that although he is struggling, he understands that he's a person of influence in Israel. And so he says in verse 15, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. You see, there are some struggles that you never see that people are having that you're never aware of that are so deep, that are so personally uh, a part of who they are and what they're walking through that unless, you, unless they make it known, you will never know it. And so here you have Asaph expressing that this is his deep internal struggle. And before he wrote this psalm, it seems nobody knew about it. And there's wisdom there. There's wisdom of him being a person in influence, not going too deep with too many in terms of what his heart was wrestling with and just kind of holding back as he worked through this process. One day, at some point, this truth must drop from my head to my heart. My doubting of the goodness of God needs to be replaced with a rekindled discovery of the goodness of God. And this is what happens. This is why the psalm doesn't stop at the end of verse 16 with this note of hopelessness. But you get to this incredible transition in verse 17 as he's thinking this through, as he's maybe pinning this psalm and articulating these truths, and he's realizing what's going on in his heart. He's starting to sober up, and you get to verse 17, and you find him rediscovering the goodness of God when he makes this statement. 
It's a big word that I would encourage you to circle, but it's a big transition. He's saying that I was doubting the goodness of God, struggling with envy, struggling with regret, tempted to turn back on my faith until something changes in verse 17. And notice what happens in verse 17 as he begins to rediscover the goodness of God. He says, until I entered God's sanctuary, until I joined God's people, until I stepped into the place of sacrifice and the place of worship, until I returned to this reality of God's presence, until that happened, I was going astray. But so in verse 17, we see the first thing he did to kind of rediscover the goodness of God as that truth began to move from his head to his heart. The the first hit against it that would dislodge it and that would set it loose so that it might drop into the soul was by going into the sanctuary and engaging in the worship of God's people. Doubt should never hinder you from engaging the realities of God's grace and the means of God's grace that are available to you. Sometimes we think that if we're doubting, if we're struggling, then we have to sort of get all those things in order before we can press into the presence of faith, press into the presence of God. But according to Asaph's example, no, he was doubting, he was envious, he was regretting, he was struggling, he was, things were not right in his soul. And he will confess some deep stuff here in a moment, but that didn't keep him on the outside of God's people. He said, no, the worst thing I could do for my soul is to sit in my doubt and to disengage from the means of grace Although I'm doubting and although I'm struggling, he says, no, I'm going to go into the sanctuary and I'm going to embrace this means of grace that God has given to me. That is the gathering of God's people. So he went into the sanctuary and the sanctuary did for his soul what the worship gathering should do for our souls every week when we gather with God's people. It caused him to look up, right? He walked into the sanctuary and he was reminded that the universe didn't revolve around him. He was reminded that the universe revolved around a much greater reality, a much greater person. It was his short-sighted view was replaced with a God-centered view. His myopic view was being exploded with reminders of the reality of God's presence and reminders of the reality of God's goodness, which we will see here in a moment. Only when God becomes the center of our vision and we're returning to the sanctuary and we're allowing our myopic view to be expanded Only when God takes his place at the center of our vision will we begin to see things properly, will we begin to see people as we should see people, not as caricatures, but as those created in the image of God who are wallowing in their sin and rebellion, and they are in desperate need of the grace of God in the gospel. Unless God is the center of our vision, we're not going to see people rightly so that we become envious of them. We're not going to see life rightly so that we become regretful, even in our decision to follow Jesus. And our feet start slipping, we start losing traction, and we think, okay, I'm going to step back from this thing. I'm not going to go any further in the life of faith. But then Asaph entered the sanctuary. And what happens to his soul in this moment, his vision is broadened. He begins to be reminded of the reality of God's presence, and he sees the evidences of God's goodness. And and you get to the second dynamic of his soul as he starts seeing the big picture. So he entered the sanctuary, and he began to see the big picture. Notice verse 17b. It says, until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood. And that word understood has this idea of perception. He began to see the big picture of God. He began to lift up his gaze, and his gaze began to broaden. 
Again, his short-sighted view was replaced with a God-centered view. And notice the elements of this big picture that he began to see at this portion of the psalm. Verse 18, he says, Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. So he's affirming something true there. He's saying the life, a life of faithlessness will end badly. And so although he's created a caricature of those who were faithless earlier in the psalm, he does still recognize and believe that things for them will not end well if they continue in their rebellion, they continue in their rejection of the grace of God and the goodness of God. They're not trusting in those realities. Things are going to go poorly. And so the big picture that he begins to tune into is that eventually eternity is going to restore the balance to all things that eternity is going to restore the balance to all of reality. So if you are experiencing incongruity where you look out of the world and you see the, the faithless prospering and the faithful suffering, that's not going to be always. One day eternity is going to restore the balance and those who are suffering in the name of faith, those who are struggling in their efforts to follow Jesus, things aren't going to be hard on them forever. But instead eternity is going to restore the balance. And he says that death is going to be a sudden awakening from the illusion of success and power and prosperity. It's going to be like waking from a dream over in an instant. It's going to be kind of like that experience Miss Columbia had back in 2015. If you remember uh, Miss Universe pageant uh, a few years ago, uh, Steve Harvey was hosting and he committed one of the biggest blunders a host of that pageant could ever commit where he crowned the wrong queen. And he announced the wrong winner, and he announced it, and things moved so swiftly that uh, Miss Columbia actually had a crown placed on her head. And like 30 seconds after that, the most awkward moment in live TV possible, Steve Harley, Harvey had to say, I- I've made a mistake. And he had to come clean to that moment saying, I've placed the crown on the wrong head. And within 30 seconds, Miss Columbia's dreams were dashed, and that crown was removed from her head and placed on another I want you to think about this because I think there's some dynamics here. The world we live in often crowns the wrong queens and often crowns the wrong queens and often crowns the wrong princesses and princes. But their reign and their rule is going to be short-lived. Prosperity in this world, apart from the reality of God's goodness, apart from the life of faith, it's going to be short-lived. And we live in a world that often crowns the wrong people, but there's coming a day when God makes it all right. And God's going to crown his sons and his daughters. We are going to step into the glory of God's presence. And we're going to enjoy the goodness of God's prosperity forever and always as eternity restores the balance. It's a remarkable hope that we have. And we don't want to give into a short-sighted view of things where we think God's goodness only shows up in the world through prosperity. That's not true. We never want to communicate that message because prosperity apart from faith is short-lived. It is a, it is a counterfeit king and a counterfeit queen. It's a mistake. A guy by the name of Helmut Tielicke put it this way as he began to think through the problem of kind of the incongruities of life and the struggles of injustice and, and seeing you know, good people suffer, bad people uh, prosper, and how all this just doesn't make sense, and it calls into question trust in the goodness of God and all of this. Listen to what Helmut Tielicke said about this. He said, Helmut Tielicke, if you don't know him, he's a German theologian back in World War II. He's one of my favorites. He said, someday the mystery of suffering, of madhouses, mass graves, of widows and orphans will be illuminated. 
Someday will come the hereafter when we shall learn all the answers. Someday the paralyzing contradiction between justice on the one hand and life's apparent game of chance on the other will be reconciled. Someday the tension between rich and poor, between the sunny side of life and the gloomy zones of horror will be equalized. Eternity is going to restore the balance. And this is something the psalmist began to realize as he's thinking through truth. He's thinking through the reality of God's goodness and even the reality of God's justice. He's saying life in this world is vapor. It doesn't last forever. It's going to be like when it's over, it's going to be like waking from a dream. It's going to seem so short, so quick. So he's reminding himself to invest in what really matters. And he goes on, he's seeing the big picture that eternity is going to restore the balance. And this drives him to start confessing his sin, verse 21. And this is when he opens up and he expresses what was really going on in his soul. He says, when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, he says, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Some of your translations may say, I was a beast towards you, God. He's confessing this dynamic. He's recognizing that where his heart was wasn't good. And he wasn't right to create caricatures of others. He wasn't right to be envious of those who were prospering. He wasn't right to regret the life of faith that he had given himself to. And he's recognizing this and he's now confessing it as he's thinking through the big picture. Now, another big transition happens in verse 23. He confesses his sin saying, I was a beast towards you. I was like an unthinking animal. And then verse 23, he makes this statement, yet I was always with you. Don't you love that? He was with God even in verse 4. He was with God even in verse 13. He says, yet I was always with you. I was, I was venting. I was expressing these struggles, but I know I was always with you. Why? Because you hold my right hand. And he's remembering the goodness of God that although he's struggling, God wasn't. Although he was anxious, God wasn't. Although he was envious and regretful and wrestling with sin in his life, God was still reigning, still ruling. God was still gracious and good. So the question I have, how could that be true? How could he have always been with God at that point? And how would God always hold him, uh, his right hand in his struggles? How can he know this, is, this to be true? Well, remember where he is. He's taken his struggles into the sanctuary. He hasn't separated himself from the sanctuary. He moves into the sanctuary. And when he enters the sanctuary, he's reminded of the presence of God, but he's also reminded of the promises of God. Think about what he would have seen the moment he stepped into the sanctuary. He would have walked into the sanctuary, looked around him, and he would have seen animals. He would have seen beasts. And what would have been happening to those animals? What would have happened to those beasts? Those animals and those beasts would have been on altars. Their blood would be shed. They would be sacrificed in the sanctuary. And he comes to this realization, God is good. These sacrifices mean something. And he identifies himself with those. He's saying, I was beastly towards you. I was like an untrained animal. In other words, he's saying, I am the one who deserved to be on the altar. I am the one who deserves to be slaughtered in this moment. I'm the one who deserves to be cut off from you in this moment. He begins to see this picture of substitution in the sanctuary. And he's reminded not only of the presence of God, he's reminded of the promises of God to provide an atoning sacrifice for his sins. But don't overlook the fact that he identified with the sacrificing. I'm the one who, belo who belongs up there 
but he's realizing he's not the one up there. He's realizing that God has provided counsel. God has provided promises. God has provided a way for other sacrifices, other offerings to take his place in the sanctuary. And this is when you really begin to see the big picture. This is when we really begin to see the big picture of the gospel and the big picture of what, how we know God to be good, no matter what's going on around us. I'll give you, I'll, I'll show this to you by uh, calling your attention to the moment Jesus is starting his public ministry in the gospel of John. And there's a moment where he walks into the temple. There's a moment when he walks into the sanctuary. And, and I want you to hear what Jesus says in John chapter 2 in light of this psalmist experience. I want you to listen to what he says. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus walked in and he, he's engaging the religious leaders and he's saying, destroy this temple, destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the statement Jesus had made. You see, the big picture is this. The big picture is that Jesus is the ultimate sanctuary. He is the ultimate temple. He is where the presence of God most intensely resided in the world. But not only is he the ultimate temple, we know Jesus is the final sacrifice so that he would go to the cross to do what? He would go to the cross to take our place. He would go to the cross to suffer the consequences and the penalty that our envy and our regrets deserve. Jesus went and took that for us. That's the big picture of Psalm 73. The big picture is Jesus being the ultimate sanctuary. He is the presence of God. Jesus is the final offering. He is the final sacrifice. He is the work of God on behalf of his people. If you want to rediscover the goodness of God, you do so by joining God's people and rallying around the realities of the gospel hammering the realities of the gospel into your soul, pounding your head as often as you need for that truth to drop from your head to your heart. And when that truth begins to drop from your head to your heart and you find Jesus to be the ultimate temple, you find Jesus to be the final sacrifice, you find Jesus to be everything that you need in your relationship with this God, you find Jesus in that way, that's when things begins to change. When you begin to see Jesus in this light and you begin to center your life around Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, everything changes and you find yourself asking ultimate questions. You're no longer infatuated with the immediate questions that perplex people and that, that uh, keep people from enjoying the goodness of God because they're too stuck in the limitations of their reason. They're too stuck in the limitations of their ability to understand what goodness should be like and what goodness should look like. No, instead, you come to this point with the psalmist in verse 25 where he says, who do I have in heaven but you? And he asks the ultimate question saying, God, if you're this good to me, if your presence is real and your promises are true, if you've provided a way for me to be made right, even though I've been beastly towards you, who do I have in heaven besides you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. His heart has changed at this point. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Truth is dropping. Truth is dropping into his soul. 
He's rediscovering the goodness of God. He's embracing the goodness of God. He's asking ultimate questions. He's no longer myopic. He's no longer short-sighted. He's now God-centered. He's now God-saturated. He's now God-satisfied because of what he saw in the sanctuary. And you and I can turn our attention to Jesus over and over and over again, looking at the ultimate temple, looking at the ultimate sanctuary, and consider how he was God's provision for us. Fix our eye, the eyes of our faith upon Jesus and, be, and rediscover the goodness of God. Rediscover the satisfying presence of God so that we embrace God's goodness once again. And then notice how the psalm ends in verse 27. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, here he is talking about himself again, owning this experience of taking truth in, thinking truth through, and now he's turning it out. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've got God, I'm good. And this is the heart of the Christian. I've got Jesus, I'm good. This is the heart of the follower of Jesus who's fixed the eyes of their faith upon the crucified and risen Christ. We're saying we got Jesus, we are good. His presence is our good. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all that you do, so I can make my life count for the goodness of God in a world gone wild, so I can make my life count for the goodness of God in a world that is often sideways, and unjust and not right, saying, I can still embrace the goodness of God and enjoy the goodness of God as I journey through this world. There was a guy by the name of William Borden. You may have heard his name. Uh, back in 1904, he graduated from a Chicago high school, and he was an heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. Now, if you don't know who Borden is, it's milk and, and butter and ice cream, and it's a very big uh, empire and company, and he was heir to it. So by the time he graduated high school, he was already guaranteed to be a millionaire. And as he graduated high school, his parents sent him on a trip around the world to just kind of broaden his horizons to see things, and he began to travel uh, through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, and uh, as he was doing so, he felt, felt his heart kind of growing in response to the incongruities of life. He began to see people suffering. He began to see people hurting, and his heart began to beat in their direction. And so as he traveled around the world after high school, he sensed a calling from God to give his life to, uh, to missions, to go and serve people who were hurting and having a hard time. And as he kind of experienced this calling, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words. He said, no reserves. In other words, I'm going to put my feet behind Jesus. I'm going to follow him without holding back. I'm going to follow him without reservations. About that same time, he journaled in his journal. He said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And that's what he began to live his life by. He went to Yale to, to study theology and to grow and get ready for uh, giving his life in this particular way. And so once he got to Yale, he started a small prayer group with his peers and this prayer group began to create a, 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 a big impact on Yale University at the time of their generation. And, and so they began to pray together. And by the end of his first year, there were 150 freshmen meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer in these groups. By his senior year, get this, 1,000 of, thir of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in these types of groups. An incredible movement in about four years' time. While all that was going on, Borden strategized with his fellow Christians to make sure that every student on the campus heard the gospel, and he strategized with everyone on his campus to make sure the people in the surrounding community were cared for, and so he would often be seen ministering to the, to the homeless and the hurting in, uh, on the streets of New Haven. 
But his real passion all along was missions. He was ready to go to the herding cross-culturally. And, and once he narrowed his uh, missionary call to the Kansu people of, in China, he, he never wavered. He never wavered. He lived his life without reservation. So he graduated from Yale, and he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible underneath the words, no reserves. These two words were this, no retreats. So he said, no reserves, no retreats. And in keeping with that commitment, Borden turned down several high-paying jobs that were offered to him once he graduated school. And, and he, and he uh, followed Jesus to Egypt. And as he was in Egypt, he went there to learn Arabic because of his intent to work with Muslims in China. So he learns Arabic. But while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And with a month, within a month after contracting this disease, William Borden died at the age of 25. So all of that life, all of that potential, all of that hope. But here's a man who said, I'm following Jesus without reservation. I'm following Jesus without regrets. And although he was following Jesus into a context where he contracted the disease that would end his life at the age of 25, but get this, just before his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the, underneath the words, no reserves and no regrets, he would write these, I'm uh, sorry, under, the, under no reserves and no retreats, he would write these two words, no regrets. He died without regrets. He wouldn't have changed a thing. I believe he was a man whose heart registered with the goodness of God. I believe he was a man whose heart registered with the reality that eternity is going to write the balance. So he wasn't consumed with immediate questions. He was consumed with ultimate realities, and he gave his life. And although his life was cut short, he died without reservations. He died without retreating. He died without regrets. He died essentially believing in the goodness of God. You know, when you and I embrace the goodness of God, we begin to see Jesus as the ultimate sanctuary and the ultimate sacrifice, we begin to see Jesus as being our good, that he is the goal of our lives, that he is the goal of our, of our, he is the object of our hope and our faith. When we get there, we are going to be able to live lives and we're going to be able to be a church that has no, that follows Jesus without reservations, that follows Jesus without retreating, and that follows Jesus without any, any regrets. And why is that? Well, it's because God is good. And we're embracing his goodness in the midst of a world filled with madness, in the midst of the world filled with incongruities. We're finding continuity in the goodness of God and we're clinging to it. We're embracing it. We have the evidence for it in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's square our lives up with that reality and pursue it with everything that we are. Our time in this world is short. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed 30 years in this world. We know life is short. Let's not waste it. Let's embrace the goodness of God together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to embrace your goodness? I pray that you would help us to learn from Asaph's example, who was a person of faith who took truth in, who thought truth through, and then in the end, he turned truth out. God, I pray that we would be such people of faith, that we would be such a church, that we would take your gospel in, that we would think your gospel through, that we would turn your gospel out, living lives without regret, without retreat, and without reservation. God, let your goodness 
fuel the lives that we live in this world. Let us make our lives and our church count for your glory in the city of Seattle and the surrounding region. God, we ask and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.